0: Welcome to Medical Matters. Uh, It's a new podcast where we'll discuss all kinds of topics that matter to healthcare and medicine uh, and bring on a variety of experts to share their unique stories, um, insights, and perspectives. So, My name is Sunil.
1: I'm Kendall. We're both first-year medical students at the University of Nevada, Reno School of Medicine.
0: And uh, today, we are glad to introduce our first guest, Dr. Joe Grzymski. He's the director of Renown's Institute of Health Innovation, as well as the chief scientific officer. Um, He's also a distinguished researcher in the field of genetics and bioinformatics who pioneered the Healthy Nevada Project, which, as some of you may know, is the largest community-sponsored population health program ever conducted in the entire world. Um, It gathered genetic information on tens of thousands of Nevadans, Uh, to better improve our understanding of genetic risk factors and their relation to various diseases. Um, So, I feel like I'm only scratching the surface of what you've done, Um, but Dr. Grzymski, uh, I want to thank you for joining us with your busy schedule. Um, We want to start off just by getting to know a bit more about um, what your vision is for the future of genetic testing. How does it look for you? Uh, So, thanks for having me, future of genetic testing, I mean,
2: I I think it's just going to become as commonplace as as blood draws um, for preventative screening and and things like, you know, heart disease. Um, But we're not there yet.
0: Um, So how far out do you think we are from that becoming like so ubiquitous that we treat it as if it was just a blood draw? Uh, That's a good question. I I think we're starting to see in, in the United States and, elsewhere around the world, um, more common
2: acceptance of testing, particularly for high-risk conditions where early detection yields better uh, results, thinking specifically of um, mutations on BRCA1 and 2. Um, there are screening programs in places like um, Alabama now for women uh, for looking at um, these mutations for hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome um, obviously what we're doing you know, what the geisinger health system's doing in pennsylvania um, but obviously policy lags and there is still apprehension on the part of individuals rightfully so that um, genetic information might be used to make decisions on long-term care, insurance, given the the wonky system we have in the United States, um, et cetera. Um, I I think that will go away uh, for sure in let's say the next five to 10 years when mounting evidence for using genetic testing for preventative screening, risk stratification, you name it, um, just becomes so obvious and the preponderance of evidence that it saves lives makes it, um, you know, kind of a no-brainer from from the payer system. But, um, you know, as of now, it is a choice. We we think it's the right choice for people to make, particularly for, you know, the more prevalent and penetrant conditions. But, um, yeah, I'm... I'm saying five to ten years, I guess.
1: What are those more prevalent conditions that you just mentioned?
2: Well, the ones that you know we're particularly focused on in, in the Healthy Nevada project are what are called the CDC Tier One conditions. So Centers Centers for Disease Control have basically said you know there are conditions um, whereby if you if you have results um, of um, you know, pathogenic mutations it makes sense to return them to individuals because early detection and prevention, um, screening, et cetera, will will lower mortality and morbidity. Um, The the three that we're focused on are hereditary breast and ovarian cancer syndrome, the one that probably most people know about, Lynch syndrome, which is uh, risks for colorectal cancer and endometrial cancer in women, and familial hypercholesterolemia, which is this lipid disorder not related to diet and exercise. And all three of them, the evidence is really good that you want to detect those variants early. You want to take the appropriate action um, based on family history, based on you know the known penetrance of the specific variant. Um, and in the case of FH, at the very least, you want to screen for LDL cholesterol levels, etc. And in fact, American Heart Association says families that have FH, they want to screen kids and start uh, prevention as early as age 10. So wow. those are wow. the, the the three major conditions, um, and and their their prevalence in the population is greater than one percent. So it's not, um, you know, these aren't trivial numbers. Um, they, they are relatively significant.
0: Absolutely. And if you're considering the genetic variants themselves that maybe aren't so penetrant, that could be a significantly higher percentage of the population that carries them. Yes. Uh, however, I think caution there
2: is, um, you know, the... Returning results is a very serious thing, particularly for um, the person who has the variant, and, and I, I think ethics and, and best practices um, and, and lessons we've learned from, from our own work and looking at other health systems is that um, you really want to make sure that you're returning, you know, known pathogenic. Um, variants uh because you know people tend to make um, you know significant decisions based on that and in fact i think you know maybe last year or so there was a big article in the wall street journal about a family that had received results from myriad genetics and um, the variant got reclassified as um, of unknown significance and they had all had already taken preventative, you know, radical interventional surgeries like, you know, mastectomies, oophorectomies, et cetera. So it, it, I would argue I'm all for giving people as, as many results back as possible, uh, but I, I think those results need to be interpreted with the best evidence because um, it, it's just, you know, you're dealing with some some complicated information that often yields very drastic medical decisions so it's a little bit different with like FH you know FH you can you can even just think you have FH and um, you don't even need a genetic test then you can go to your doctor and you know for for nineteen dollars or whatever it costs you can go get a blood draw and, and somebody will measure your LDL cholesterol and say no you're good but you know for for The cancers, the detection, of course, is key, right? You want to detect them and you want to prevent them as early as possible, and that often leads to, um, you know, a lot of significant intervention.
1: Speaking of ethics, what role do you think ethics play in public policy when it comes to genetic research?
2: What role do ethics play in policy? I mean, ethics is, is extremely important. In, um, well, in genetics, whether it's um, you know the sensitivity of um, you know, race and ethnicity, the importance of of social determinants of health, um, and then you know the fact that individuals are going to be acting on this information and they will have consequential impacts on both their life, but in the case of Mendelian inherited conditions, they're going to have impacts on the whole family. So, you know, we at a Healthy Development, one of the things I think I'm, I'm most proud of is, um, you know, we've tried to be as, um, you know, ethically cutting edge, and by that I mean, you know, really, really minding and respecting the individual um, versus, you know, doing what's best for the research, uh, which I think is much less important. Um, and, Uh, You know, we we talk about those um, decisions, the importance of, um, you know, understanding the consequences of, of, you know, everything from our consent to um, how we return the results to individuals to what the individual is going to do with those results. And of course, some of the individuals aren't going to do anything because they can't. and, And that really plays into the decision making.
1: Do you think that politicians pay enough attention to the social ramifications related to genetic research?
2: Well, I mean, that's a, a loaded question, because that would imply that politicians pay attention uh-huh. in general.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's establishing an <laughs> assumptive
2: baseline. <laughs> so, if, so, the answer is no, I don't think they're paying <laughs> And, and you could have an entire episode of your podcast on, on the complexities of delivering care in the United States and as future doctors, you know, you're gonna have to deal with that. But no, everything from the role of genetic counselors to the importance of long-term follow-up, you know, all of that is, is really disregarded in a system which either doesn't cover everybody or, you know, follows you only as far as, as you are with that provider based on your job, right? And so there's no incentive to, you know, for a family with a family history of cancer, let's say, to have long-term genetic counseling. And so the the importance of genetic counseling is is kind of minimized, Um, the importance of, you know, Providing a, a firewall between uh, genetic results and, and future care isn't acknowledged by, um, you know, by by policy um,
0: you know, or it hasn't caught up yet maybe is a better way of putting it. Yeah, wow. So that leads really, uh, really well into my next question, which is, you know, when we're talking about the importance of genetic counseling, when we're talking about the importance of including, um, you know, ethical concerns into into the decisions we make in allowing, uh, patients and individuals to have access to this information, um, uh, I, I like to think of just, just a case scenario where you can have a situation where someone is given access to relatively benign information, say the risk of hyper, uh, hypercholesterolemia or say significant information about the risk of breast cancer, the BRCA mutation, for example, um. My question is do you think it's better to allow a patient to have complete access to all of their genetic known all, all of their known genetic risk factors um, even those that have an unknown significance or would you rather uh, selectively grant access to the risks the risks that we do know have a high penetrance um in other words like do you have a more libertarian or more paternalistic view towards like a patient's access to their genetic risks I, I don't necessarily see it as as having
2: uh, a libertarian versus a paternalistic access. I mean, definitely the individual should have access um, to the, you know, information that they're paying for, um, you know, when, when they're doing testing. 100% agree with that. Um, but you know, it, it's more complicated than that from the perspective of an interpreted result. and. Um, you know we definitely at least at Healthy Nevada which of course is a unique situation because it's an actual research study so you know we we have to follow i would say a very strict um, protocol for returning results um, but but still even if i was doing this as a health system um i think you really want to provide the the individual with the most actionable information possible and and not not overwhelm them because they can't handle the information but because you know it's going to be kind of death by a thousand cuts of what are you going to do with you know a 1.2 relative risk increase in, in parkinson's or alzheimer's to take some some Conditions that people really want to know more about, but we we struggle to, um, you know, have good clinical risk factors for those, and I, and I think that just understanding the difference between absolute risk and relative increases in risk is difficult for individuals, and so, you know, imagine. Um, you know, what's the difference between a, a VUS, a variant of uncertain or unknown significance, versus one which is, you know, known pathogenic? And I would be worried that, you know, providing all that information might lead people to kind of dismiss the, the wrong information and worry, obsess about the, you know, the, some, some other information like the, you know, APOE for variant impact on, um, you know, on, on potential Alzheimer's. So th- that's kind of my, my take on it. I, I think there are, you know, there was an attempt back, you know, a few years ago, there were a few companies out there that would kind of do a, a whole workup on individuals. And I, I think what you'll, you would find if you, if you looked at outcomes is that outcomes were not improved. Um, risks increased from, you know, unnecessary biopsies from whole-body scans, etc. Um, and, and that's probably not the right approach for the general population. Now, there are, I think, exceptions to that. Um, an example, I guess, that comes to mind would be a family um, that has you know, very high incidences of cancers, and um, you know they're, they're clearly tracking in either the maternal or paternal lines and you know the doctor orders a write-up um, you know on on their germ line and finds you know a bunch of VUSs in known you know oncogenic drivers and, and there I think the, the you know it's a little bit clearer that you want to return that kind of information to an individual um, because um, you know they're going to need, so to speak, all the help they can get. Um, but I, I think it's it's certainly a very complicated question of how much information do you return, and and then of course in in the case of. Of the health system, how do you pay for it, right? Because all those interpretations, um, you know, have computation and um, you know, interpretation, medical genetic interpretation behind it, and it's it's probably you know cost prohibitive. Whereas screening for the CDC tier one conditions, I think it's been shown um, in the U.S., but particularly in, in in Europe, um, that it's very cost-effective to screen for those conditions and return those results.
0: So, in, in a sense, it's 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 one of the answers that we might not always uh, prefer, but the answer that has the most significance, which is that it depends. Uh, there's some cases where a patient's uh, patient, patient's risk for things like cancer can have uh, extreme um, importance and impact on their on their future health outcomes in their lives. Uh, but then there's a lot of situations where we might encounter an analysis paralysis where a patient is given hundreds of variants and they have no idea what any of it even means. Um, science might not necessarily know either.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah, I,
2: I, I think that's things right. Things and you can, and, and we do this a lot in, in, you know, in, in my group with understanding, you know, the implications of the information, you know, imagine, for example, uh, um, you know, two, two, two random families, and one um, has a, um, you know, Lynch syndrome variant, known penetrant, um, and they have a young child. Um, are, are you going to recommend that they go and screen their young child for the variant, you know, at age eight? Um, I would say no. The, the, the screening certainly doesn't start uh, in, in, let's say the child is a, is a male, um, the screening certainly won't start at 50. If you have Lynch, you'd want to start it much earlier, but are you gonna worry um, and, and um, you know, try to manage that young child um, between eight and, and let's say 30? I think the answer is no. Whereas, um, let's say you have a, uh, you know, an individual with, with FH um, and they have a 10 year old, and and you know mom has ldls of 240 and it's, it's under control but we know that 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 burden that exposure of the ldl over the lifetime is what increases the risk for people with fh whereas you know people who don't have fh you know sometimes their cholesterol is high because they're not eating well they're not exercising sometimes it's low because they're you know going crazy and all vegan and you know, exercising, um, and that averages out, and and the exposure, the load on on your arteries, um, you know, is is X. Whereas people with FH, you know, it's always high, and you really want to minimize it as early as possible. And so, I think that's a that's an example, very extreme, but an example of how we might respond um, to returning those results.
1: So, when you're talking about minimizing risks as, oh, are you okay oh. there?
0: Are you good? Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when you talk about minimizing risks of, say, for example, FH as early as possible, that kind of starts uh, thinking about embryonic editing and the implications that, that has today as far as quote-unquote designer babies go. So where do you think the line is between Genetic therapy for preventing these known variances, such as FH uh, versus enhancement.
2: Uh, I'm I'm on the enhancement is wrong. Um, you, you know there there's a very big difference between you know screening for conditions and you know making modifications to get you know what you want out of um, an embryo. You know, I, I think within, let's say, 10 years, we may have some modifiable drugs that you know will, let's say, go into the liver and make actual genetic changes that will lower cholesterol. And I think that's a very reasonable thing to expect from medicine. Um, I think knowing impact of heart disease making those changes is is going to be the right thing to do if if the drug is safe and 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 the condition is you know significant enough right the 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 number to treat um, you know it's to get an effect is low Uh, but you know modifying embryos to get height differences you know attitude uh, all of that stuff seems a little bit far-fetched. Um, it certainly seems ethically incredibly dangerous. We saw what happened um, with, with the attempted modification in, in China. And, uh, and I think it's going to be a long time uh, before that becomes tolerable. And, and even then, um, you know, you're going to pit the ethics of, frankly, you know, letting the embryo terminate versus modifying it to survive, and, and I mean, these are questions that are definitely not in the the biophysicist in these wheelhouse.
0: Yeah, you, you actually um, brought up a, an interesting point that I've been curious about for a while: the Chinese experiment with the CRISPR babies. Has there been any significant updates on that front yet?
2: I haven't kept up with it, okay. um, so I, I can't um, speak intelligently to, to the updates, except that it was, you know, roundly condemned by by the community. And, um, you know, I think the, the potential for adverse consequences, particularly given CRISPR is, you know, CRISPR is not a scalpel, right? There, There are um, you know, potential, you know, transgenomic changes that can be made, um, you know, because of the lack of specificity in many cases. And so it's just that's it, the whole thing is wrong. And, um, you know, we should worry about, uh, you know, the more controllable problems that we can't even address, right? You don't need CRISPR to fix the fact that, you know, we have a very uh, fractured. Health system in the United States, at least, um, that yields a lot of health disparities. I mean, just look at the impact of, of COVID-19 on various race and ethnicity groups and in, in the United States, based on rural, urban, et cetera. So, I just see there's a lot of misplaced energy in 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 this you know wild goose chase for very as you know, as we would call it, a very low, you know, impact or, you know, it's going to be a a very small modified, um, you know, odds ratio change on outcomes compared to, you know, much, much bigger and better things that we can do.
0: Absolutely. I think when it comes to actionable changes, we can make some serious immediate impacts on our healthcare system if we, you know, had political will um, to do so. Do you feel like the attention that is being put into this genetic modification, into CRISPR, into technologies um, that are uh, seeking to essentially bioengineer ourselves, do you feel that that will be fruitful or do you feel like there's a lot of misplaced attention?
2: No, I I think it's good to think and and spend time on bioengineering because it has potentially other impacts. Let's, Let's say, you know, take something which... Is non-controversial like if, if CRISPR could be used to improve the differentiation of cells for making better um, you know skin for burn victims I don't think anybody would argue with it right if 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 bioengineering whether it's CRISPR or any other modifications can be used to help massive backlog of people who need you know transplants of specific organs I think that will be good but Going back to the playing God, is that what CRISPR is going to be for? No, I don't think anybody, nobody who won the Nobel Prize recently, nobody who's working on those significant bioengineering problems is saying, you know, let's make designer babies. They're really saying, you know, how can we use this for those specific purposes? Or even, you know, in the case of CRISPR, you know, they're using it to help with, you know, building rapid tests for COVID, um, you know, for doing diagnostics, um, you know, for making modifications during, um, you know, cancer therapies, you, you name it. And I think all of that is incredible and it's going to yield, you know, better drug effect uh, and, and should be celebrated and all of the other stuff should be roundly condemned and, and not funded.
1: So all of those therapies right now seem a little bit more epigenetic or not really manipulating the genome itself?
2: Yeah, I think there's a few sites are set. I know that there's, um, I'm not an expert in this, so um, you'd have to look it up, but I think some genetic modifications that are approved for some eye conditions, which is a very isolated you know, organ. Um, there's hopes that modifications can be made um, to some of the, you know, lipid regulating proteins in, in the liver. Again, a targeted, you know, a, a targeted therapy, um, things like that, I, I think are going to be huge victories uh, for, for those, you know, very specialized diseases or in the case of, of the liver, um, something that impacts, you know, I don't know, 40% of, of the population.
0: Absolutely. Um, Dr. Grzymski, I feel like uh, this conversation could extend uh, as far as as we wanted it to. Uh, We know that we want to respect your time. So um, we just want to ask like pretty much one last question, which is, uh, you know, with your work in the Healthy Nevada Project, um, you know, you briefly mentioned that uh, you hope that one day um, and you you kind of envision that one day it'll be as common as a blood test. Um, I just want to kind of get an overall view of what your vision would be, um, how you see this project potentially um, expanding uh, in terms of effects for the overall healthcare system as well as to america as a whole
2: sure so I, I think first um and we recently published on this um you know we found that the current guidelines in in the u.s healthcare system in general um, miss a lot of cases of of CDC tier one conditions. Um, In our paper, we said that almost 90% of them were missed if you used the the classic clinical screening guidelines, family history, risk factors, et cetera. The genetics doesn't really miss those things, right? It's a very accurate test. So before we get wild and, and try to solve all problems, you know, one of our goals is just to make sure that um, for everybody who wants a test um, and everybody who gets a test, that we can identify those conditions and make sure that they receive the appropriate preventative um, you know, treatments and, and screenings, because doing that will lower uh, mortality and morbidity, at least for those three conditions. That's like a very low bar. Um, and, and I think the United States will move towards that, given, um, you know, more and more work on both the, the population genetics of those conditions, the impact on, on disease, um, and, and we and others have reported um, on that. Then there's the economic impact, so if you screen the entire population and it costs x how much money will you save if a fraction of those that have those conditions do the appropriate screening and don't end up showing up at the hospital with stage 4 breast cancer stage 4 colon cancer etc have a heart attack need you know massive ICU care all that stuff's wicked expensive so that's a low bar um, And then personally and within the Healthy Nevada Project in general, when when you start studying um, something as as fine as um, genetics and you start collecting information on on health outcomes, you quickly realize that the the social determinants of health and all of the other um, determinants that aren't um, concrete at least from the perspective of going to a doctor and getting a stethoscope put on your chest or getting a blood draw have a massive impact on health and and so how you integrate those um, you know decisions uh, decision support um, how you communicate that to um, in our case you know the health system in general I, I think is is going to be um, Something that we're gonna to have to spend more and more time on. And that's that's hard um, to do, of course, because, for example, you know, pharmaceutical companies in general prefer to to spend their their research dollars on um, you know building therapies for actual treatable conditions. Um, and these are much more societal problems. But we have a very big window into them in Nevada and I suspect others will that do these types of studies. And so it's, it's almost incumbent upon us to try to address them. And so we, we are spending more time on that. And I would hope part of my legacy will be on, on how we built the Healthy Nevada Project around all of the health determinants, not just um, you know the rel- relatively easy, at least to quantify, um, determinants like those that are embedded in your your germline
1: absolutely hope to see that one day
0: that's it, it's fascinating that you said that and one thing you mentioned specifically about uh, the pharmaceutical industry you talked about how uh, they tend to treat uh, chronic conditions that we know and that we understand is there a way that we can gear that research that innovation away from from the known chronic conditions towards the other ones towards the the more rare towards the more uh, unknown?
2: A lot of this is an economics argument, and definitely I am not a policy person. Um, I, I think there, there are some inherent disadvantages in you know a system that rewards basically treatment, right that that's what a drug is, right it's, it, it may not treat it well, but when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, take this because, you have high cholesterol you are being treated um whereas if they just tell you um you know go fix your diet and do some more exercise um, that may be a treatment i think it's a treatment but you actually have to do it yourself and the there's no lever that can be pulled from the perspective of, ph- of a pharma company, for example, to, to, to put their weight behind that type of decision. And so I think we're, we're always tilted towards treatment, or some people call it sick care. And and we do minimize prevention. Um, you know, we, we minimize it, for, for sure. I mean, we can't even wear a mask, um, <laughs> so... So, so how, how are we going to expect people to, to radically alter behavior and how are we going to expect to maybe remodel the, the payor model so that pharma still gets revenue to invest in R&D for much needed treatments of both common and rare diseases, but also acknowledges um, you know, the, the potential financial gain of the system itself if you modify your behavior rather than go and, and, you know, I'm constantly given a pill or, or, um, you know, a, a prophylactic treatment or whatever. And I, and it's a massively complicated problem, um, that I'm, I'm happy to, to come back and, and talk about it another time, but it, to me, it just goes back to, you know, who's paying the bills and what's the incentive. And the incentive is to treat rather than to prevent. And I think we just need to change that. And it's much harder to do than it is for, for you know, a researcher to say.
0: Absolutely. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface when it came to your other the other aspect of your life, which is working with Renown, working with, uh, uh, you know, their, their their financial system, their... Um, I mean, their, their overall system that that deals with um, the issues of the healthcare system at the forefront. Um, so I think uh, we would, we'd would love to have you back at at some point in the near future, if that would be good with you.
2: Absolutely, always happy to support. Uh medical students and um talk about you know all the great things that are happening in northern nevada
0: well we want to thank you for your time dr grzymski
1: we appreciate
0: it and uh to those listening in uh keep an eye out for our next email regarding our december episode uh don't know if we can uh match this but we're definitely going to try it. so uh, on that note have a great day dr grzymski and we hope to see you soon
1: and this has been medical matters
0: take care thanks